Welcome to the Piano Whisperer podcast. What's unique about me and what's important about me as a musician is not tied to perfection. It's sort of the opposite. It's the more that I can lean into and make friends with my limitations and with my vulnerabilities, then the more in touch I am with what I actually have to say. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Piano Whisperer. I am your host, Ben Klinger, and I am more than thrilled to introduce today's guest. On stage, playing piano, behind the board, producing, or alongside an artist writing songs, Matt Rawlings staunchly subscribes to a philosophy of mastery, innovation, and service that powers all aspects of his creativity and has led him to become a multi-platinum Grammy Award-winning producer, pianist, and songwriter. The sought-after piano virtuoso's performance discography spans thousands of recordings. These range from Eric Clapton, Lyle Lovett, Billy Joel, Johnny Cash, Queen, the Dixie Chicks, Steve Martin, and Edie Brickell, Mavis Staples, Sheryl Crow, even Metallica, and more. In the producer's chair, Matt's innovative approach has resulted in critical acclaim and commercial success, with credits including Willie Nelson's two most recent Grammy-winning albums, Summertime, Willie Nelson Sings Gershwin, and My Way, Willie Nelson Sings Sinatra, but also Mary Chapin Carpenter's Grammy-nominated The Age of Miracles, Keith Urban's multi-platinum self-titled Breakthrough Opus, and the Edwin McCain Band's multi-platinum Misguided Roses. Matt also has played on all of Lyle Lovett's recordings, and they've enjoyed a collaborative partnership and friendship that exceeds 33 years and includes touring as well as co-composing the score for Robert Altman's film, Dr. T and the Women. Within the Nashville scene, he is established as a sought-after collaborator whose unique voice graces numerous landmark releases. Continually recognized by the industry, the Academy of Country Music notably awarded him Pianist Keyboardist of the Year 10 times. As far as service goes, Matt regularly holds clinics and masterclasses for students and professionals, and he hosts the online video series Ask Matt Rawlings, willingly dispensing wisdom accrued from nearly four decades in the business. The last few years have represented further evolution for Matt. In addition to touring with Alison Krauss and continuing to produce records for Willie Nelson, Blues Traveler, and others, 2020 brought the release of Matt's highly anticipated solo album, Matt Rowling's Mosaic, which showcases his cumulative mastery as pianist, arranger, and producer with collaborators Lyle Lovett, Willie Nelson, Alison Krauss, The War and Treaty, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and more. In the end, Matt's devotion to mastery, innovation, and service makes for an enduring connection with each show and song. To me, music is all about feeling, he says. Yes, it involves craft and intellect, but it ultimately has to have feeling. That's how I communicate to the world. It comes down to authenticity. Matt Rawlings, welcome. <laughs> thank you so much, Ben, and thank you for that glorious introduction. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, it's a tapestry over decades, right? It's amazing. What a wonderful legacy. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm really excited for our conversation. In fact, if you asked my wife who my two biggest musical influences are, she would say Bill Evans and Matt Rawlings. Wow. So yeah, that's true. Genuinely, this is an incredible privilege for me. And so therefore, I have a lot of questions. All right. Let them rip. Let's go. <laughs> there we go. So I noticed that most interviews about you tend to focus on your experiences with other artists. You've had so many noteworthy collaborations, and that makes sense. But I'd love to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about your early life growing up, how you were exposed to music, your early influences, and what shaped you the most? Sure. I started playing piano when I was nine, and we were living outside of Chicago at that time in uh, Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And my memory is that my brother, who's just a little older than me, had started playing guitar maybe, I don't know, maybe a year previous. Mm -hmm. And we had a very healthy sibling rivalry, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I had to keep up. I had to have an instrument myself, but I couldn't choose guitar. That would be copying. And that's, you know, death. Yeah. 
is copying. So my grandmother, I think on my dad's side, had an old upright piano that they gave to us. We put in the basement and it was rugged. You know, the cabinet was really in bad shape. And I'm pretty sure my mom spray painted it white. (laughs) Yeah. So we had this white piano and then they found, my mom most likely found a teacher there in downtown Evanston. There was a piano studio run by a guy named Alan Swain. Yeah. And Alan Swain was an educator of note and had written a number of books of piano sort of method books for young students. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just kind of lucked into this great place. And I didn't study with Alan himself. He was around, but he had a couple of younger teachers that taught for him. So mm-hmm. I studied with a guy named Dan Mrowinski, hmm. who unfortunately died a few years ago. But, you know, they had this great method where, you know, initially I was taught what the notes were, how to read hand position, and there were scales involved in there, but it was by no means a classical regimen. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I was able, they had a couple of different things. They had these one-page songs called blues, B-L-U-Z-E. Let's say they had blues number three, (laughs) blues number four, blues number five. And these blues were simple melodies and walking bass lines based on the blues. And then they also had simplified transcriptions of jazz songs, which represents my very first jazz piano influence, which was Ramsey Lewis. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the in crowd, hang on Sloopy, those songs, those were a part of this sort of library. So this studio, they had sort of a jazz lens, Mm -hmm. but it was a very accessible one. Yeah. And then the other thing that they did is they would make simplified transcriptions of popular songs. You know, this was the 70s. Yeah. So one of the very first songs I learned was Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, which was a hit on the radio. So (laughs) this song called Smackwater Jack, which was a Carole King song. I think was on Tapestry, which was out at that time, you know. So it had a twofold effect for me. One was that it turned me on to jazz and the concept of swing and the feeling of jazz and the feeling of the phrasing and the way that jazz phrasing sort of is. And it got that inside my body really early. Mm. The other thing it did is it it sort of magically connected piano lessons with music and music that I loved. Mm-hmm. And anytime now as an adult that a parent asks me, should I get piano lessons for my kid or what kind of lessons should I get? Mm-hmm. I make sure and talk about how important it was for me that I had a teacher who connected learning this instrument with music and not just with work and study and rudiments and difficulty. Yeah. So I was hooked immediately. I believe this was sort of what I was meant to do anyway. So it was just like the door opened. Yeah. Another thing happened, which was, I think, sixth grade, you know, maybe a, a year or so in, but my sixth grade class had a talent show. And I was such a part of this talent show. I did like four things. I was like the house pianist for the talent show, you know. (laughs) I did a song on my own. I accompanied, talk about cliche, I literally accompanied a little girl singing on the good ship lollipop, you know, (laughs) like all this stuff. And so at the end of the talent show, there was this kid. I honestly think I remember his name. I think his name was Peter Scala. So he was this big, you know, there's always like the kid who's, in the same grade, but literally twice as big as you. And he was (laughs) that kid and I was afraid of him. And he didn't bully me, but you know, he was an opposing figure in the fifth grade. Yeah. At the end of the talent show, he came up to me and asked me if he could help me carry the keyboard. Oh, wow. And that was it for me. I was like, all right, I am onto something here. Like this is this whole music thing. I think this could work for me. Wow. So yeah, that's like the origin story. And then it went on from there. I played all throughout the grade school. Then we moved to Phoenix in the late 70s. And my parents found a way to send my brother and I to this private school called Phoenix Country Day School. Mm -hmm. And they had a jazz band and a band director. And it was one of those, you know, you hear about the band director that changed everything, right? Yep. This was that guy, his family owned a music store. He was passionate about teaching kids jazz. And he took us to all the festivals, the high school jazz band festivals. And it was this just beautiful, supportive opening for me. And, you know, I literally never done anything else. At some point during Phoenix early as a freshman, maybe, I think I washed dishes. You know, I was supposed to get a job. So I I washed (laughs) dishes for two weeks and then I had to quit because my band had band practice or whatever. Yeah. So you answered a bunch of my questions. It sounds like you had an early vision that you wanted to play professionally. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, it does. You know, by the time I realized how difficult it could be to actually be a professional, it was too late and I already was one. Yeah. So 
Certainly by high school, I could say to my parents, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing for my life. And they, you know, they were supportive of that. That's really cool because you were playing a lot of late nights. They struck me as having been supportive. And then you even switched from private school to public school to accommodate your performance schedule while in high school, right? I did. So I'll tell you that story. This is two stories that connect. One of the really amazing things that this private school had is every year there was a two-week period that they called New Horizons. They had a variety of different programs and you had to pick something. They had hiking trips to Utah or they had all this sort of extracurricular educational stuff and set programs that you could join and pay for. Sure, yeah. But then one of the things they did, which was an option if you could make it work, was called the shadow program. And the shadow program was literally that the student would talk to their advisor and then identify a professional in a field they were interested in, approach this professional and ask them if you could shadow them for two weeks, Mm -hmm. which would involve kind of whatever the professional wanted, but would involve daily during school hours going to their place of work and then being sort of an apprentice or a shadow. So at that time in Phoenix, actually in Mesa, which is right next to Phoenix, there's a school called Mesa Community College. And Mesa Community College, you know, a two-year school, but they had a really amazing and renowned music program and a jazz program. And there were two gentlemen there who ran it. There was a guy named Grant Wolf, mm-hmm. who was just a very special and talented jazz educator and another guy named Don Bothwell, Mm -hmm. who was a drummer and also an educator. And they ran this program and they were known throughout the state and produced amazing musicians. And so that's who I approached. I approached Grant Wolf and said, I'd like to shadow the MCC jazz program for two weeks. And they let me do that. Good for you. That's bold. So I went and did that. And one of the guys I met who was in the program playing bass was a guy named Matt McKenzie. And so this was my freshman year of high school. And so I spent the two weeks and Matt and I became friends. And then I went back to school. So somewhere in my junior year, so a solid year and a half later, Mm -hmm. probably near the end of my junior year of high school at Phoenix Country Day, I got a phone call from Matt McKenzie. And Matt said, I'm in a band. It's a house band at a club called Mr. Lucky's. I'd never heard of Mr. Lucky's. And we play five nights a week and it pays this amount of money. And our piano player is moving back to Texas and we would love you to come audition for this band. Nice. So what he didn't tell me was that Mr. Lucky's was the biggest honky tonk in Phoenix and that the (laughs) band was the biggest sort of country dance band, like the top of the heap, you know? Yeah. Filled with talented musicians. Oh, an amazing band. So I showed up at Mr. Lucky's way West Phoenix and I brought a date, my friend Tracy, and I'm showing up with my like jeans and topsiders and my button down shirt, having no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. Walked into the door and like immediately out of this sort of hidden door, this monster of a man steps in front of me, like (laughs) literally 300 pounder looks like a refrigerator and says, may I help you? And, you know, I said, "Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here to audition for the band. So he calls back and they had a band room and I wasn't allowed to be in the bar. but I could be in the band room. I was 17. So I played that night and just kind of went on instinct and then played the next night and they hired me, long story short. And so that was the switch. That band worked Tuesday through Saturday and Tuesday through Friday was, you know, eight to one. Wow. And then Saturdays and Sundays added two extra after hours sets. So you're there playing until 2.30 in the morning. But I was going to be a senior in high school and I didn't need much to graduate. But regardless of the credits, everybody at PCDS had to show up at 8.15 every morning for morning meeting. Yeah. It was a non-negotiable, um, non-negotiable part of it. So, yeah. yeah. So I went to my parents and said, you know, can I switch? Can I go to public school and graduate? And they let me, you know, to their credit. So I wound up going to a public school called Chaparral and all I needed to graduate was government econ and two semesters of shop. Like literally that was it. So yeah. I could show up at 11 o'clock in the morning, do my two classes and then go to rehearsal. Amazing. So tell us how Mr. Lucky's led to playing in Luxembourg and then meeting Lyle. Love it. Yeah. So that follows right along. So joined the band, did the year at Chaparral. You know, the timeline, it was a long time ago. <laughs> That's yeah. literally 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, I stayed in that band for two years. Mm-hmm. So at some point in the second year, we were playing one night and a guy wandered into the club and then approached us on a break and talked to Billy Williams, sort of the de facto leader of the band. The band was J. David Sloan and the Rogues. J. David Sloan was the musical leader. He was the front man. But then Billy Williams was sort of the business leader of the band. Mm -hmm. 
And so they approached him, talked to him. And then, you know, that night after the show, we all spoke. And turns out this guy was from Luxembourg and he was in the States trying to recruit talent for the Schuberfauer. The Schuberfauer is the big fair every summer. I think a version of the Schuberfauer has been going on in Luxembourg City for centuries. Wow. But this was the 1983, maybe, mm-hmm. 1983, 1984 Schuberfauer. And he offered us a gig. They wanted to fly us to Luxembourg to spend a month and play in the big tent, the big American music tent. And so we accepted. And then that summer, we all flew to Luxembourg and started this gig. And so we were hired, J. David Sloan and the Rogues. And actually, we had changed our name by that point for this gig. We were called Sugar Jaw, which is an unfortunate name. But nonetheless, that's that's what was decided. (laughs) Yeah, that's rock and roll. Yeah, Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So another band from Florida called Body and Soul And they were sort of a big show band with dancers and horns. There was a family element, like there was a mother and father and daughters, and then some side men that weren't a part of the family. And I think both of those bands had been hired by the same person. But then another guy, uh, (laughs) there's so much to the story. So another guy had hired this singer-songwriter from Texas to come and play the set changes, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was Lyle. So that was Lyle Levitt. And he was a journalism graduate from Texas A&M. All he had done musically, I mean, he had played a lot, but what he had done was just play solo or with a duo. He, at that point, had played with John Hagen, the cellist, and this guy, James Gilmer, percussion. But that's kind of the extent of the band experience he had had. Yeah. But he was very much a folk solo singer-songwriter guy from Texas, right? Yeah. So he had been hired basically to play the set changes. So we would play this fully electrified, two electric guitars, bass, drums, keyboards, all this stuff. And then this other band with, again, electronic instruments and horns and singers and dancers, Lau would get up in the middle with his acoustic guitar and nobody would pay attention. That would be the cue for everybody to start getting rowdy and drinking. And so (laughs) the other part of this story is, is that Lau had been hired by a guy who was a graphic designer who also moonlit as a country singer. (laughs) And he had designed the posters for the show and there were a bunch of mistakes on the posters and they were very racy and he got fired. Oh. And he had bought Lyle a one-way ticket to Luxembourg. A one-way ticket. (laughs) So suddenly Lyle's champion had been fired and he was like kind of dying out there. So a weekend he approached us. He actually came to our hotel and he he was just as Lyle is, very respectful, but made the request that would we be willing to learn a handful, like maybe five of his songs and back him up for his set, like call him up during our set, however it worked, yeah. so that he would have a chance of being heard over the crowd. And we had been listening to him for a week and, you know, he was great then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to agree to that. And so we learned a handful of his songs, which included Cowboy Man, If I Were the Man You Wanted, God Will, The Waltzing Fool, Probably Give Back My Heart. All of those were in his grab bag already by that point. Mm -hmm. So we spent the rest of the month doing that, getting to know Lyle, being his backup band for his sets. Then that month ended, we went back. At that point, I had made the decision to quit the band, go to Berkeley, get back on my I'm going to be Bill Evans route, (laughs) you know, go to Berkeley, graduate, go to New York, all that. So in the meantime, this summer before I did that, I had joined the band of a local jazz celebrity, Francine Reed. Mm -hmm. And we played all over Phoenix. We went and did the Telluride Jazz Festival. Matt McKenzie, who was in the band at Mr. Lucky's, also joined that band. Mm. So probably around the summer, Lyle came to town and hired us. Lyle had raised a bunch of money and he wanted to come to town he had had such a positive experience with our band. He had never really played with a real rhythm section before. Yeah. And he, he wanted to do it. And we had brought a lot to his songs that he really liked. So he hired us and hired Billy Williams to produce. And we spent, you know, the better part of a month in Phoenix. He had 18 songs that he picked out. And his goal was to record them as well as possible, you know, record quality production and go get a publishing deal. That was his idea. Mm-hmm. So we did the recordings and uh, it was great. And recorded all those songs I mentioned and then a bunch others. Yep. And then I went off to college, went off to Berkeley and started my college career. So what really made you decide to do that? I know that you wanted to get back onto the jazz track, but what did you think you would find at Berkeley that you weren't getting from these great musicians? It was just that. It was a great gig with great musicians. I still had the itch to go be a jazz musician. I gotcha. You know, that was my dream. That was my original dream. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first started playing piano and it was Ramsey Lewis and then it was Oscar Peterson and then it was Bill Evans. Sure. 
and Herbie mixed in and all this, I was still very much enamored with jazz piano and very much had the dream of being that and doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was just time. I had two years with the band and it was time to, to go to college. So, yeah. And Berkeley was at that time, especially a real hub for jazz education and connections, right? There were so many teachers. It was, it was still very much connected with performance and, you know, Gary Burton was there and Phil Wilson, the great trombonist was there and there were incredible faculty slash musicians. When I was there, Daniela Perez was there and Donnie McCaslin, amazing tenor player Mm -hmm. was there. Ben Porowski was my good friend and he was there. So it was loaded with young stars yeah. at that time. This was the early to mid 80s. Yeah. And the MP&E, the Music Production and Engineering. Yeah. Unbelievable. I'm still very connected with them. I'm authoring an online course for them right now. So. Oh, wow. But the focus has shifted. They have a strong focus on, you know, how to make a living in the business. Yeah, sure. At that point, it was still about... Knowledge. It was a place to play, learn how to play, learn how to arrange, you know, all of that stuff, composition, arrangement, performance. For sure. So back to the story, about, I don't know, maybe eight months in, something like that, I got a call from Lyle Levitt. He called me on the phone and said, Matt, I got the publishing deal but I also got a record deal. I'm signing with MCA. It was actually Curb at MCA. And they're taking 10 of our demos. And this was right at the time when digital audio was really exploding. Mm-hmm. It was the latest thing. Everybody was cutting to digital, to these horrible Mitsubishi 32-track digital machines. But that was the thing, you know. So mm-hmm. all the records were being cut on digital. And we had recorded these tracks analog, 24-track, 2-inch analog. And so he said, we've picked 10 of the songs, they're transferring them to digital, they're going to remix, but we're going to do some overdubs first. And he said, I want to fly you to Nashville. He said, they Mm -hmm. want to use a session guy, but I want to fly you on my own dime. I want to fly you to do these piano parts. That's nice. At that point, they were going to try to make Lyle into a country artist. So they wanted to put real acoustic piano on some of the ones that I had played Rhodes on. So he flew me to Nashville. I went to a studio called Treasure Isle in Berry Hill. Tony Brown, who was then head of A&R for MCA and was the producer for this, he was there and Tony Brown is a piano player. Tony played with Elvis. Yeah. Tony played with Roseanne and Rodney, played in Emmy Lou's Hot Band. So he had become a very successful producer, but he was a pianist, started playing gospel music when he was a kid. So I went in and I think one of them I did in one take. And so it really got Tony's attention. Mm. I had spent one day there, flew back to Boston and two things happened. One of them was that day lit a little spark for me about studio musicianship session playing. Mm -hmm. I was a massive fan of like Steely Dan and James Taylor, Joni Mitchell. So all these records that had primarily come out of LA during the 70s, some 60s, but a lot of 70s, I paid attention to who played on them. And I had started realizing that I would see Leland Sklar, Steve Gadd, Michael Brecker, Dean Parks. Like I would see the same names. On the records. On lots of different records. Mm -hmm. And so I was starting to realize like, wait a second, that's these guys' jobs. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. You know, it was this sort of realization like, that's a job. Yeah. So I had just had this experience in Nashville doing that, starting to get excited about that. So the other thing that happened is that a couple months later, I got a check mm-hmm. and it was quite a bit bigger than I expected. So I, I thought, huh, this is interesting. And then three or four months after that, Tony called me on the phone, Tony Brown. And he said, Matt, I'd like to fly you back to Nashville. We have an artist development program where we sign young artists that we're trying to decide if we want to spend the resources to make full records. And we do sessions, development sessions to see how it works. I'd like to fly to Nashville to spend a couple of days and work with two of our development artists. So that was it for me. That was like, okay, the writing's on the wall. And I took a hard left, right, whichever, and decided to move to Nashville and pursue that. So I went and did those sessions and came back, but then the decision had already been made. Yeah. And so end of 86, I moved. Wow. Okay. So that was a long story. Thanks for being patient. No, that's super (laughs) interesting. And it's so funny. If you read my notes, like you literally answered every single question in order. That's great. (laughs) It was amazing. So once you got to Nashville though, and it's a very eclectic music town now, but you played a lot of country music. And were you surprised to find yourself playing a lot of country? And did that seem like a natural fit for you musically? Well, I knew what I was getting into. So the two years spent at Mr. Lucky's, literally twice a week after work, 
we would stay in the club and learn a new song. One of the singers would learn a new song. Mm -hmm. This band played all of the Merle Haggard canon, the George Jones canon, the Tammy Wynette canon, and then we would learn something new on the charts every week, so we would be updated. And the way we would learn a song would be to sit, listen to the song, and write a number chart, mm -hmm. and then learn the song, which is exactly the way sessions are run in Nashville. Yeah. So I had this amazing, unbeknownst to me at the time, very specific training on how to be a session musician in Nashville. Yeah. The other thing is that when I got there, when I first started on this band, I was this kind of jazz punk, you know? <laughs> and I like laid back, like I was all into like swinging and laying everything back. Yeah. And in country music, like literally within the first week, I was sat down and told in no uncertain terms, your job is to play rhythm. That's your gig. Like yeah. the piano in this music is a rhythm instrument. And that means like, you don't lay back. That, that screws with the rhythm section. Yeah, yeah. And I really respected all these guys. So I listened and I learned on this band how to play rhythm, how to play rhythm in ballads, how to play rhythm in three, four songs, how to play rhythm in Western swing. And I developed, and because it's who I am as a musician, I have naturally really good time, mm -hmm. a good sense of time. Yeah, you do. And I developed this inner metronome and this rhythm and this ability. And these guys were grooving. So I had a great drummer who really had a pocket and a swing to him. The guitar, there was like a funkiness to this band. Yeah. And I found it. I locked into that and learned to play rhythm from these guys who played great. Yeah. So I made the decision to go be a session player in Nashville. And I knew what that involved. Okay. And Billy said to me, when you go there, at least at first, don't show these people that you can do all this jazz. The most important thing is, if you want to do this, is make a commitment to this music. Show them that this is what you want to do. Yeah. Not that you're too good for this or you, you know. Yeah. Serve the music. Yeah. I really took that to heart. Yeah. And I became a student, you know. That's great. Now, I got the sense in researching you that you truly love being in the studio recording. You said in an interview that you love, quote, working with these amazing people in a room until the song somehow magically lifts off the ground and becomes bigger than any of the individual parts, unquote. Yeah. I thought that was a beautiful quote. <laughs> and do any particular experiences jump to mind when I bring that up? The first one that jumped to mind was working with Lyle. I mean, like you said in the intro, I've played on all of his records. Yeah. I remember being at Ocean Way in LA recording Joshua Judge's Ruth. That's so funny. I got to interrupt. That's my next question. Is, is The thing that jumps <laughs> to my mind is Joshua Judge's Ruth. Because <laughs> that's, that's a top five album for me. That's a remarkable album. So tell me about that. It is. It's a remarkable album. And the song I remember is North Dakota. Mm, yeah. And so to me, the best session experiences as a player and as a producer, but from the player's side, are the ones where there is freedom to explore yeah. and to try things, you know. And there are sessions that aren't like that. There are sessions that are completely or close to completely scripted, and that's the gig. Yeah. I feel like I'm at my best when there's room for me to sort of find something myself within the parameters of the music, of the artist, of the style. And Lyle is really amazing about that. Lyle almost requires that of the musicians. He is such a fan of the musicians that he plays with. Yeah. And what he wants in the recording process is he wants them to bring something yeah. that elevates the music. Yeah. And then he'll say yes and no to things, but he really fosters an atmosphere of collaboration in that way. The collaborative energy felt at times like it had to have been recorded with you all in the same room rather than overdubbed. Was that true to some extent? Oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. And Lyle, especially, he wants to get you know as much of the conversation to happen in real time as possible, yeah. which is the way I learned to make records as a player. And it's the way I like to make records as a producer. It's just that's my orientation towards record making. It's old fashioned now. But to me, that's the way you can create a piece of music that's alive, you know, that yeah. continues to be alive, that continues to have life and air and breath and all that. Oh man, that record, I'm telling you, that truly is a top five album for me. And I've transcribed tons of that. That's fantastic. There's so much artistic freedom in that recording. And in many of the cuts, the piano was foundational. And to be clear, I got to say this, Joshua Judges Ruth would not have been the same album without you. I can't even imagine it without you. Thank you. I mean, there's a lot of piano on that record. Yeah, absolutely. But was the intense gospel direction, was that your influence on the album? Because it's an intensely gospel flavor. Yeah. I mean, you know, it starts with the song. Lau bakes that into those songs. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because yeah. it's the way he phrases, it's melodic, it's the chords. And then, you know, me sort of going there yeah. because there are some situations 
not Lyle, like just a hypothetical where another artist might bring a song like that yeah. and might say, I know this has a gospel flavor, but I really don't want you to go there because if the piano goes there, it's full church and that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. So Lyle, on the other hand, he wants me to absolutely go there. The more, the better. Yeah. So for me, it's imitation. I didn't grow up in church, but I'm a fan. Like I really resonate with that music. Mm-hmm. So I copy it. I just sort of run it through the white boy from Connecticut filter and yeah. it, come, it comes out like it but, comes out. You know, yeah. it's Ramsey Lewis meets the black gospel music that I've listened to. And I certainly don't want to appropriate it's more appreciate. I just... Well, you have your own flavor on it and you're playing on I've Been to Memphis in Church. It's so original. I, I do think it's not some kind of regurgitation at all. I mean, it is so you. Like I can tell you are hearing this stuff. It is in you. And I was like, how in the world did you develop this style of unique gospel playing? It's so unusual. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I would say it's like I was talking about with the band at Mr. Lucky's, it's absolutely rooted in rhythm. Yeah. That's the core of it. And the quote you quoted from my bio that talks about feeling, Mm -hmm. for me to be able to do what I do, I have to find a way to get the music into my body. Yeah. So if you ever watch me play, particularly if it's something rhythmic, I'm pounding my foot. I can't not do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's even to the point of where I've identified that it's not really pounding my foot to the music. It's more like establishing the feeling in my body and then playing to that. Yeah. But there's this other side of it, Matt, because you're incredibly melodic also. Like I could Mm. sing your lines on I've Been to Memphis. Mm. And so it's, I'm just telling you, I've never heard anything (laughs) like that. Even North Dakota, you're talking about that. And first of all, I have to say Lyle's lyric writing oh, God. Yeah. is amazing. Oh, my goodness. I think the music, the tracks, the performances are spectacular. But to me, what makes Joshua Judge's Ruth the record it is are the songs. Like that collection of songs to me is, yeah. is sort of unsurpassed. It's magnificent. I, I feel that way, too. I just so I've been waiting 30 years to ask you these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, in 2006, you left Nashville for L.A. and you were quoted as saying, I think L.A. was my midlife crisis. And <laughs> so I, I just wanted to know what was going on inside you at that uh, time. Well, So I left Nashville in my car to drive to LA almost 20 years to the day that I arrived in Nashville. And there was a lot to this decision. I had an idea that I wanted to try film scoring. Ah, okay. And I had a manager at the time who lived in LA who was encouraging of that idea. I needed to change. I had had 20 years in Nashville. I sort of grew up there. You know, it was my early 20s. During that period, I had gotten... Married and divorced. My father had died. Mm. It was one of those things that I would drive around Nashville and everywhere I went, there was sort of a memory attached to a place, you yeah, know? Yeah. So it just felt like I wasn't too old to make a big change. Yeah. But I was old enough to kind of do it in maybe a responsible way. So yeah. I did. And, you know, right about that time, I was getting together with my now wife. So we lived together in Beechwood Canyon when I first moved there. And then we got married in 2007. And then she was pregnant in 2008. And then we moved to Encino and we had our son in 2009. And um, I did a little film scoring. I scored an independent film. I wrote some national jingles. And more than that, though, I started doing quite a bit of arranging. Mm-hmm. And I worked a lot. I did. Every month I would wind up <laughs> I would wind up looking at my wife saying, I've been working all month. Why isn't there any money? <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. You know, Los Angeles, it's an expensive place to live. So after your time in LA, you moved back to Nashville and you got back on the road with Lyle Lovett. And while on the road, you got a call to co-produce Willie Nelson's Gershwin album. Yeah. So please tell yeah. us how that came about. Ah, yes. So Buddy Cannon, who is a great producer, a really legendary Nashville producer and songwriter, has written a bunch of hit songs, has produced a bunch of Willie records, Merle Haggard records, has produced all the Kenny Chesney records, Mm. and was a really good friend of Billy Williams, strangely enough. So I had met Buddy early on in my Nashville career back in the 80s, just because he was friends with Billy. And Billy had said, when you get to Nashville, look up Buddy Cannon. So we had been friends a long time. Mm. Round about 2014, We were at a bit of a crossroads in Los Angeles. I lost my studio. I had a great sweetheart deal on a studio in Studio City, and I lost that Mm. and was trying to figure out how to set up studio space in LA. It's just wicked expensive. And 
So we were living in Toluca Lake at the time, and we had bought our place in Toluca Lake in 2010, low at the bottom yeah. of the real estate market at that point. And we noticed a bunch of places selling for a lot of money. We thought, I know, let's sell, and then we'll get a place with space enough for me to set up the studio. So that was like, to say that was easier said than done would be the understatement <laughs> of the year. Yeah. So suddenly we're in under contract on our current house and we were like, where are we going to go? When I left Nashville in 06, I kind of thought I wasn't ever going to go back. Mm. And then one day I was looking at Zillow and I just decided to check out Nashville. Mm -hmm. And it was like Pandora's box. It was like, oh my God, look what we could buy in Nashville mm -hmm. for what we're going to make on this house. So that eventually led to the decision to move back to Nashville. So yes, just to kind of cover that ground. Yeah. Then yeah, I did another tour with Lyle and I'm on a bus. It was a day drive and Buddy Cannon called me out of the blue and said, Matt, they're giving Willie the Gershwin Prize. It's the Gershwin Prize for popular song. It's a congressional honor they give every year. It's a songwriter's award. Super cool. So it's been given to Paul Simon and Carol King and James Taylor, I think. And, you know, Willie, who's known as Willie the Performer, but he is an iconic songwriter. I mean, yeah. he's written some of the greatest standards. Yeah. He said, Rothbaum, Mark Rothbaum is Willie's longtime manager, who was also Miles Davis's manager for a period of time. Anyway, they said that we want to make a Gershwin record to commemorate this award he's getting. Do you want to co-produce this with me? And it was like, well, wow. let me think yeah. about it. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that began that journey of making these records. And the first one, we did just rhythm section with Mickey Raphael playing harp and Paul Franklin playing steel. And I wrote arrangements. Yep. And we went and cut that record. We cut it in L.A. with the late, great Ed Cherney, recorded and mixed it. Mm -hmm. And I cast the players, Dean Parks, Jay Belarus, David Pilch, myself, and then we overdubbed Paul Franklin and Mickey and, uh, you know, made this record, put this record out. First thing that happens is we got a Grammy nomination, which was, you know, super exciting, surprising, yeah. but cool. Yeah. And then the night of the Grammys, we didn't have a TV. We decided let's get rid of our TV. We'll put it back in the back building where the studio is. We didn't really watch TV. So my wife's parents were in town and they really liked watching TV and they really liked watching the Grammys. So yeah. my wife and I, that Sunday daytime, we went to Target and got a TV <laughs> <That's so laughs> you know, and hooked it up for the Grammys that night. And so we're getting ready. We're making food, getting ready for the Grammys. And I got a text. So, you know, most of the Grammys in general, are given out at what's called the premiere ceremony. It's like a daytime ceremony where 90% of the Grammys are given out. It's not televised on network, but you can stream it. Gotcha. You can stream mm -hmm. it on Grammy.com or now you can do it on YouTube. So I didn't know any of that. I wasn't paying attention. I got a text from Buddy Cannon that said, Willie just won the Grammy. Wow. <laughs> and I went, oh shit, what does that mean? Because yeah. I actually didn't realize that that meant I got one. And then a minute later, Ed Cherney, and I don't know if you know about Ed. Ed was one of the great classic recording engineer mixers. Mm. And we lost him a couple of years oh. ago. And Ed recorded my record, Matt Rollins Mosaic. Oh. As well. He died before he got to mix it. But, oh. but anyway, Ed texted me and said, hey, Matt, in about a month, a truck's going to pull up to your house with a pretty cool package. Wow. <laughs> and so I suddenly realized, like, I just got a Grammy. Yeah. And so that was the first one. And we watched the Grammys and I was kind of cloud nine. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Honestly, like at that point, I figured I'll probably never get a Grammy. Like I'm not making beats or producing pop records. And then suddenly I got one. Yeah. And then. <laughs> and I wanted uh, another uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> That's how that works, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So then that led to Willie's Sinatra album and that also won yeah, a Grammy. That won the same one. That's so. The traditional pop Grammy. And that one, I was nominated as an arranger on that same record. So how cool is that, right? That one, we expanded for that record and I did maybe three string arrangements and two or three horn arrangements. And yeah. so I did an arrangement of, it was a very good year. The string arrangements. Oh my goodness. So lush. Yeah. Yeah. And actually me and my friend, Chris Wilkinson, she is credited as a co-arranger as well. Nice. And she orchestrated because I was a nominee, we got to go to the Grammys for that one. Yeah. And we were sitting there at the premiere ceremony and didn't win the arranging Grammy. But then I got a text, another text from Buddy, because <laughs> he was watching it. You yeah. know, he was streaming it. They say that whoever hosts the premiere ceremony, they make sure and they say, only come up if it's your Grammy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, so many artists won that their producers came up and accepted, yeah. right? It just kept happening over and over. So Buddy texted me and said, if Willie wins, you got to go up and accept it. Oh. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. So I'm on my little notes app on the phone, just like writing out like- What are you going to say? Yeah, yeah. And you know, Tony Bennett's nominated and Tony has won that award 
more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it was Tony and Diana Krall. And I figured we're not going to win, but I better be prepared. Mm-hmm. And of course he won. <laughs> and so I went up and I accepted and a uh, little bit of a funny thing. So I accepted the award. I got back to my seat. So Diana Krall's manager is uh, a guy named Steve Macklem. Macklem Feldman, they also manage Diana Krall. They also manage Elvis Costello, who they're married. Mm-hmm. Yep. They manage Lyle. So I know these guys. Yeah. They're friends and they're from Canada. They're from Vancouver and super, just great group of people. And so I get a text then after I sit down from Steve Macklem and he says, hey, Matt, I'm here with Diana and Tony and we're, we're sitting across the auditorium. Congratulations on the win. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, like Tony Bennett's like, anyway, it was just, <laughs> it was a funny, it was funny. a funny moment. Yeah. If I had known they were there, I'm not sure I would have, you know, actually right. had the guts to go uh, up and accept. That's but That's funny. Yeah. Well, so through all this work over the years, you've made literally thousands of meaningful artist connections. And this has enabled you to call in a wonderful cast of legendary musicians yeah. to create your own extraordinarily beautiful and acclaimed Mosaic album in 2020. Thank you. Oh, it's a beautiful album. Thank you. So tell us how the original concept of your Mosaic album came about and then how the idea morphed as you got further into it. In 2018, maybe. Yeah, 2018, on the road with Alison Krauss touring. Jay Belarus is the drummer. So Jay and I sound check every day. Allison doesn't sound check. She doesn't need to. And the monitor mixes are amazing. Everybody's on in-ears and she wants to save her voice. But the band goes up every day. We sound check to give the front of house guy something to listen to and to make sure he's in good shape. We just sort of habitually, Jay and I started showing up early to sound checks and we would just start playing. And either one of two things, either I would start just playing something and then he would join in or vice versa. He would start playing some kind of funky little pocket and I would make something up. So Jay and I, we just, we started developing this vocabulary together. And because he had a wedge instead of in-ears, he would just pop his iPhone and record on voice memo, stick it next to his monitor, because he had me in the monitors, and record just piano and drums. And so I had this file in my computer that was growing, you know, Akron, Cleveland, all these little snippets that he would record and send to me. And the germ, the idea of like, wow, it would be cool to record some of this, just like to go into a studio and, and try to recreate this. And so that was sort of on my mind. And he and I had talked about it a bit. Meantime, we took like a two-week break from the tours around 4th of July. And my wife and son were in Northern California where her family is. And we had left our son with his grandparents in Marin, West Marin. And we had gotten an Airbnb in this little town called Inverness. And then on our last night, we decided to drive up the coast, up Highway 1 to the top of Tomales Bay. And there's a little restaurant called Nick's Cove. Mm -hmm. And they have cabins up there, but they have a seafood restaurant. So on our last night, before I'm rejoining the tour, my wife and I, we go to Nick's Cove. We park. It's kind of late, early evening. It's typical West Marin, foggy over the bay. If you look at the back of the record or the inside of the record, there's a collage of pictures. In the middle of that picture, there's a photo of a boathouse and then an island in the middle of this bay, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's taken from the inside of Nick's Cove. Cool. And so before we go into the restaurant, there's this boathouse and the boathouse is open and we notice they've got a wood-burning stove. There's a fire going. And so we walk into the boathouse immediately to our right in a boathouse on a bay. There's an upright piano. <laughs> so all of this was so sort of spooky. My wife, this is very atypical of her, but she just plunked a note on the piano. And what she says is, it's this very wet place. It's a boathouse. It's not insulated. Like there are even strings in the piano. She was just testing it. Yeah. And sure enough, bonk, it made a bonk. There's this old guy. He's got suspenders and he looks very dapper. He's got a hat on. He's got a sketch pad on the table. The fire's burning. And he looked, he turned around. He went, oh, you going to play me something? And my wife says, no, that's all I got. But I said, (laughs) sure, I'll play you something. And there's no bench. So I just stood at this funky upright piano in the boathouse. And I just started playing a little ragtime, you know, funky little ragtime in F. And this old guy, he just lit up. He just absolutely... Like the lights went on, he started talking, telling us stories. I was sort of enwrapped. I had no idea who this guy was. On his sketchbook, he had a point of view drawn of the inside of this old, big, Peterbilt semi, dual shifter. And I remarked, he said, oh, if I had kept doing that, I wouldn't have had to play guitar all my life, he said. (laughs) And he told us that when he was like 45, he crossed the Italian Alps on a scooter. And he learned to ride bulls when he was 46. (laughs) Yeah. He said, stay away from number seven or something like that. He had all these amazing stories. So it turns out this is Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And Ramblin' Jack lives in Marshall, which is just a little bit south 
just this little town right on the bay. And he's been there for, I don't know, 30 years or something. Amazing. He comes up to the boathouse. He sits in front of the fire. He hangs out, draws, does his thing. We talked to Jack for an hour and I played more and he asked me if I played in a band and I was really struck. There was a feeling of fate about this meeting, right? Yeah, for sure. And so we went back to the restaurant an hour late for our reservation, but they somehow got us in. We got a window table and I took that picture of the boathouse out that window after we had met with Jack for an hour. And we both were stunned. My wife and I, we both were like, what just happened? Yeah. It was like we had gone to Avalon. Like we had parted the mists, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and we had wound up at Avalon and there was Jack like waiting for us. Yeah. So we went back to the Airbnb our last night and I looked Jack up half expecting that he had died three years ago. <laughs> right. we, had been, like, we had been like visited. A mystery you know, some, man, yeah. Yeah, or like it was Jack, but it was not. Yeah, you know, oh, whatever. I see. But yeah. no, yeah, there yeah. he was. Yeah. He had a website. He had a management guy. At that point, he was still signed to like Epitaph Records in LA. And he hadn't made a record in 10 years. The last record he had made, Joe Henry produced. He had won the Best Traditional Blues Grammy and Jay Belarus had played drums on it. Wow, small world. So this started this process for me. I had a manager in LA and I immediately called him. They said, man, just met Grammy Jack. I want to try to produce a record on him. How can we do this? And so we started talking about this. And a couple of weeks later, maybe a month later, I was back home in Nashville, another break on the tour. My wife and I were back home. I had been sort of obsessing about this notion of producing a record on Jack. And my wife had been noticing the energy that I had behind this. Yeah. And she said to me one night, she said, you know, Matt, this is kind of feeling like the chase to me, which is a term she uses when I've got blinders on about something and I'm maybe missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. You know, and I grumbled. I said, no, oh, what do you mean? I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, but we kept talking. And at one point she said, I have an idea. Why don't you make a record and ask Ramblin' Jack to sing on it? Mm. And it was the light bulb moment Yeah, because I realized in that moment, whoa, that's an amazing idea. And then immediately following that, I started thinking, well, who else could I get? Lyle is the obvious choice. Willie, Allison, all these artists that I had relationships with and that I had played with and collaborated with. So that began the process. And then it was a really organic thing. Early on, the one rule for the making of this record became make something beautiful. Yeah, That was the only rule. And then there were parameters to the songs. And we just decided that the songs had to be either originals that I had written, songs like If I Had a Boat that I had been a part of the original inception of, or there were a small group of songs that just were part of my musical DNA. Mm -hmm. It could be that too. The original concept of the record was to have these songs interspersed with improvisations that Jay and I did. Mm -hmm. And we recorded a bunch of them. I have an album's worth of improvisations that Jay and I did during these sessions. Mm -hmm. To release it as one record, it would have had to have been a double record. And once I had all these songs recorded, they felt like a singular record to me. So that's how I ended up releasing it. But every one of them was recorded just drums, piano, artist, period, nothing else. And then to the extent that I did overdubs, I would live with the tracks and they were cut live. Yeah. 90% of all the vocal performances are live performances, a few little fixes, but it was live, which to me is what makes the record what it is. It feels alive to me. And then as I would live with the tracks, if a persistent notion for an overdub kept knocking, then I would pursue that, like the strings on a few of them and tuba on a few of them and the horns and all of those things. But it would have to be a very compelling and persistent notion of an overdub. I didn't try a bunch of stuff. I let them live as they were until something wouldn't leave me alone. Takes a lot of patience to do that. Also takes a lot of musical integrity of sorts just to allow really your instincts to judge this and to make the decisions. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to do that actually. Yeah, it was a really good exercise for me because it changed the way I make records, quite honestly. It changed the way I produce records. It really gave me a different experience and now a different lens into producing. That's nice. Rather than I need to do this in order to, it's like I need to not do anything unless, yeah. <laughs> you know. No, that's super insightful. Yeah. So we're going to listen now to two full tracks and one partial track from Mosaic. I chose these cuts because I think they showcase how unique and creative you are artistically and also they wholly embody your guiding philosophies of mastery, innovation, and service as we discussed in the intro. Yeah. So the first cut we're going to hear is Wade in the Water. The song originally recorded by Ramsey Lewis, I think, in 1966. Yeah. And I understand, though, that your version was recorded in just one take with the Warren Treaty or Michael and Tanya Trotter. 
Yeah. And that you did it, as you mentioned, live with all of you in the same room, in addition to uh, drummer Jay Belarus. Absolutely. So there's no room for error here. You did it in one take. And I understand that you must have had the knocking of your conscience because you later traveled down to Muscle Shoals <laughs> yeah. to add the Blind Boys of Alabama, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, I love this cut because your piano playing reminds me of why I spent years transcribing you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your musicality is really out of this world. And I can't also fail to mention your deep understanding of gospel swing and and big band arranging, I felt you play as if the piano is a full swing band <laughs> and you really hear it. That's and lovely. Oh, it's true. That's great. So the second cut we're going to hear is the old Johnny Mercer standard, Accentuate the Positive, sung by Lyle Lovett. Yeah. And to me, this is quintessential Lyle. Absolutely. But again, your piano playing is unmistakably you. The phrasing, the groove, it's so enjoyable and easy to listen to. And then lastly, we're going to listen to part of the song Stay, sung by Alison Krauss, but written by you and artist-songwriter Alison Porter. And Drew McKeon. Oh, okay. Who was her songwriting partner at the time. So he was part of the original inception of that song as well. Oh, thank you for adding that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a very beautiful song and shows another side of you. You mentioned in the Missing Peace interview that I read that the guiding principle behind every decision on this album was, as you said earlier, make something beautiful. That's it. So I think this song exemplifies that. Thank you. Before we listen, I want to thank our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes all of these episodes possible. But let's listen now to Matt Rowling's Mosaic. Got to act 
Situate the positive Eliminate the negative And latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between You got to spread joy up to the maximum Bring gloom down to the minimum Have faith or pandemonium's liable to walk upon the scene To illustrate my last remark Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark What did they do? Just when everything looked so dark Man, they said we better accent You with the positive
Congratulations on this album, Matt. I know it came out in 2020, but I think it will still seem new and timeless to many of our listeners. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And look for another one. There'll be a new record recorded in the fall. Nice. I'm excited for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So one thing I read, which I loved, was that you're as inspired as you've ever been and that the way you play now is more you than it's ever been. So I wanted to ask what that looks like to you, how you're more you than you were previously. You know, that's a deep question for me because I think what's happening is the more I discover who I am as a person, Mm -hmm. which includes the way my relationship grows with my wife, with my son. Yeah, for sure. The way that I just pursue spiritual growth, emotional growth. I think that then I, as a musician, get closer and closer to being the same person who I am when I'm not playing. Yeah. So like a quest for brutal honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Or rigorous honesty, as we say. (laughs) Yeah. Rigorous honesty. Yeah. Absolutely. Brutal honesty. Yeah. Rigorous is probably a better word, right? Yeah. Well, they're both true because it can be brutal. And, and, (laughs) and, And I think necessarily what that means for me is really embracing that what's unique about me and what's important about me as a musician is not tied to perfection. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the opposite. It's the more that I can lean into and make friends with my limitations and with my vulnerabilities, Mm. then the more in touch I am with what I actually have to say. Like you said, my authenticity. I think ultimately it's like I'm learning how to actually tell my story. Mm -hmm. And it's a lifelong process, but I'm closer now than I was before. Yeah. And I have more awareness of it. That's actually the point. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of the beauties of getting older and getting more experienced and trying to live your life honestly. So, no, that's great. So, how would you recommend to young artists that they find their own voices? I don't think there's one way, Mm. uh, but I think the body is a huge part of it. Mm. I always espouse playing with the best musicians you can, trying to be the worst guy in the band. Yeah, I accomplished that for decades. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, finding a road into your body, getting your body involved. Your body is the part of you that's in the moment. That's where your breath lives. Mm. Your brain is involved with the past and the future. Mm -hmm. When you're in your body, you have a chance to connect, to actually have a real-time conversation. And that connection is where you find intimacy musically. It's where you find vulnerability. It's where you have experiences with other musicians. Yeah, it's being present, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's hard because they say being present, you know, that's... It's a little cliche. And it's also daunting. You know, if you just tell someone you have to be present, they'll say, well, how the heck do I do that, you know? But that's a brilliant observation, though. So your head is in the past and in the future, right? That makes sense to me. Yeah. And the thing is, and I talk about this to students, is that you learn the craft, right? You spend the time working on the craft, technique, vocabulary, time. I like threes. So there's mastery, innovation, and service. Another one I like is time, feel, and function. Mm. So you work on ways to get great time, metronome, great drummers, all that. Feel, that's your body. That's where the feeling is. Function is you get enough experience and enough wisdom and you start realizing, what is my job? You know, like in Mr. Lucky's, my job was as a rhythm player. I can branch out of that, but that's my main function. So you learn these things so that then that's not your focus when you're on the bandstand. Right. And one of the tools that I talk about is your attention. It's easy to say, listen to the band. You know, you want to listen. There's not necessarily an obvious door into that. Yeah. So more specifically, I talk about your attention. Take 70% of your attention. It doesn't have to be exact, but just tell yourself, I'm taking 70% of my attention and I'm going to put that 70% out on the band, on the singer. Mm -hmm. The remaining 30% covers everything. You learn the craft so your craft can work for you, right? It's amazing what we can do. I can read the chart, play the song, know when to fill. I can do all these things with less, with 10%. And then leap into the present with my attention, like literally leap. Mm. And that's like you talked about. That's when something lifts off the ground. The thing about it is that it's unknown. That's also why that's where the good stuff lives, you know. And and when it lifts, though, you got to stay in the present, right? Yeah. And, you know, you dip in and out. but, uh, But even a moment of that, any musician will tell you, you know this, even a moment of that is so thrilling that you just can't help but just want more of that. It's the greatest drug in the world. (laughs) Yeah. And so you may have already covered this to some extent, but what do you wish you could have told yourself when you were just starting out? If you could have a conversation with yourself. What I recognize now is all of the fear that accompanies being a young musician and Mm -hmm. to whatever degree childhood trauma is informing my experience. All of that fear, there's an underlying voice that says, 
you need to protect yourself or you're going to die, you know? So the thing I want to tell my young self is that's a lie. Mm. You know, you're not going to die. All of these experiences are designed to help you. That's brilliant. And the world wants you to succeed. The universe wants this to work for you, you know? Mm. And is there anything you want to add that I have missed? I don't think so. You've gotten it all right, Ben. So well done. (laughs) Well, as I said, this is really important to me and your music has meant so much to me and I'm so grateful for your contributions. Thank you very much. It means a lot to me. What I told my wife was, Matt says everything I want to say musically. Hmm. I feel like you speak my musical language, but I haven't the words to say what you said. And so I feel like you've expressed what I've always wanted to contribute. And it's not that I live vicariously. I just really enjoy and appreciate and resonate with your artistry. Well, that means so much. I appreciate your thoughtfulness and your honesty. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And how can people find out more about you? There's your website, mattrawlings.com. Yeah, there's a website that's woefully under updated. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll try to change that. Like I said, there's going to be a new record in the fall that I think is going to be a trio record. Nice. And then you have a YouTube channel with a great live stream for vinyl. That's a great concert. I totally recommend people checking it out. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so one of these days I'll do another one of those. During the pandemic, I really dug into a lot of the online stuff. And then I got really busy and have slacked off as many of us do. Yeah. And if people Google you also, a lot of things will come up. Interviews. Yeah, a lot of stuff will show for up. For sure. Well, yeah, yeah. I again, can't tell you how much this interview has meant to me. It really is a thrill. So from the bottom of my heart, Matt, thank you. It is my pleasure. And thank you, Ben. And listeners, I want to thank you too. You are what makes all this worthwhile. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Please take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.